0: Yo, what's up, Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Brian Miner, who is a Master of science and a well known coach and hypertrophy and strength expert in the field today. And today we're going to be talking about power building and a few other related topics to advanced hypertrophy programming. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, so just to set the scene here, we're mainly going to be talking about this in the context of hypertrophy training for the intermediate to advanced athlete, and I know that Brian has had a lot of uh, press for progressive overload talks in the podcasting space, so today we're going to steer a little bit away from that and explore some of his other expertise here.
1: Sounds good.
0: Yeah, so just starting off I know that a lot of my audience is going to be interested in the development of strength as well as hypertrophy and I think while we might have the primary objective of building muscle here it's also it's always interesting to think about I guess how to optimize both of these adaptations and so yeah I think just starting off Brian I'd like to just Get a sense of your thoughts on the sort of priorities um, in terms of different training variables between um, hypertrophy and strength programming, and sort of where they overlap and where they don't.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's a a multi-layered discussion, and I think a lot of the debate that in, in criticisms towards just that that term of power building, it's I think it comes from looking at the the problem or the you know the goal trying to obtain both these adaptations you know in a some somewhat optimal manner um you know i think criticisms can be made depending on what time frame you're looking at and so i think that's the first part of the discussion people um kind of need to be aware of is know this the the longer the time frame that we look at the the more the two can you know the more we can optimize both of those um and you know when it comes to strength in particular you know most people that are focused on power building they, they tend to at least in my experience they tend to be more Focused on the the bodybuilding side of things, um, and then they they want it, like they want to get big, but they also they're like ah, oh, but I want to be strong too, you know. But if they had to pick between the two, they'd probably pick being big. And so, um, you know, I, I I look at it sort of through that lens, um, and we know that you know hypertrophy is extremely important for strength, and it's one of the biggest, or it is the biggest predictive variable for strength. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in advanced or, you know, experienced trained populations. So, mm-hmm. you know, focusing on that most of the time is, or, you know, having an underlying theme that's biasing hypertrophy, you know, across a training career, I think is important, um, especially early on. And then when it comes to the the strength side of things, we we want to make sure that we're, you know trying to achieve the objective of you know proficiency and then acquiring like the intensity specific adaptations that are you know within our control so things like you know neural drive um, you know, rate of force development um, connective tissue like tendon stiffness things like that these are adaptations that are more influenced by by load than they are volume so um, it's balancing those and trying to like the the problem to this goal is is a matter of limited resources ultimately, you know. And I think a lot of people they try to kind of combine everything and yeah. optimize both goals within this narrow window. And the truth is, is you you can't do that, or you know, most people can't. Um, so I yeah, that's you know the in the short term, you have a very focused goal. And then as time goes on, you can see like hypertrophy is going to help strength significantly. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at it in that wide lens, it's, it's a pretty easy to accomplish both in a pretty significant degree.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that it just takes some thinking in terms of the different sort of factors at play here, especially when fatigue comes into the equation, and I think it when um, people sort of stumble upon power building, they're like, oh, well, for strength, I need heavy weight and for hypertrophy, I need volume. So let's just do, you know, eight by five really heavy (laughs) and just do lots and lots of squats, you know, in my competition squat.
1: Yeah. And I think one, one of the problems I think with, uh, a, a very fair critique of this is, you know, what, what are you trying to get strong in? And I think when people think power building, they tend to associate that with, you know, the big three and, you know, squat, bench, and deadlift, but it doesn't have to be that, you know, if, if we're talking about squat, bench, and deadlift, um, you know, especially if, if we're, you know, those movements in particular don't suit somebody, you have to be really careful in how you kind of dose that high intensity work, because, you know, for some people, you know, a back squat is just a very, very taxing movement. Um, You know, structurally, you know, they might not be built for it. Um, You know, they may have underlying, you know, joint issues like bench, maybe some people barbell bench, you know, beats up their shoulders a bit if they do too much. And so it's, I kind of approach it from the perspective of, you know, for the given, like mesocycle that we're in, what is, like, I don't want to do more than what is necessary to, to optimize the the high intensity adaptations. Like, I don't want to do an eight by five and accrue all of my volume with high intensities, you know, because, yeah. um, you know, if you've been training a while and you're fairly proficient in a lift, I think it's, you know, a case can be made to, to dose that high intensity work a bit less. Um, and, you know, we can kind of get into that a little bit later on but it's it's sort of seeing seeing what you can get away with in terms of the the heavy loads while still you know driving you towards that goal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess to set the stage because uh, our content on this platform is mainly based towards hypertrophy just as a very brief overview in terms of just general strength development, what are the priorities in terms of main training variables like volume, intensity, frequency?
1: yeah you know ultimately for strength it's it's going to be you know mediated primarily by intensity um and a big part of that is like if if we're looking at short-term strength like across a mesocycle if you're trying to express strength to the highest degree you're going to want to you know bring intensity of load up um and you know as a result of that generally we bring volume down because for a given amount of volume the higher intensity it's going to be you know the more stress that's going to carry and so you have to offset it with some reductions in volume um you know in most cases unless you're trying to like intentionally overreach for for a bit but um you know is a sort of a a rough way to think of it is or you know there's exceptions to this but you know, intensity is going to sort of drive strength, and volume is sort of, you know, assuming that that's at a sufficient intensity of, you know, volume is gonna influence hypertrophy. And it it influences strength too. like, you can't just do one single, and you know, that's heavy and expect to optimize your strength. But um, you know, all of the research that um, you know, looks at high intensity, versus lower intensity. I mean, strength is going to be um, influenced more or see a better, more robust response in the high intensity training groups than it is in the, the uh, lower intensity groups.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then circling back to just our um, overview in terms of the programming side of things, we, we have uh, established that maybe an eight by five squat heavy isn't the best thing um what are sort of some general sort of broad strokes programming um um structures that you like
1: so again it it depends on sort of the phase that the athlete's in um you know, the proportion of high intensity work is going to increase the closer we get to like a strength test, or when the athlete wants to be their strongest. And I think that's kind of the first thing before you know, you get into the specifics is, you know, establish when it is you want to be your strongest, because the reality is like, you can't walk around in this like, high state of readiness at all times expecting to, you know, be optimizing hypertrophy and strength, like, that's just not how it works. Um, it's not to say you can't get stronger as you get bigger, you, you should be, um, you know, at least in, in the rep ranges you're training. But I think first I, I kind of work backwards. Like I, I, you know, if an athlete comes to me that says, you know, I want to focus on, you know, like USAPL nationals, for example, mm-hmm. um, or CPU national, whatever. Um, you know, we, we prioritize when they want to, you know, peak their strength. And then we sort of work backwards from there. Um, But, you know, let's say we're, you know, far out from a meet, like, let's say we're six plus months out from a meet, you know, the the amount of high intensity work there, you know, it could, it could be as little as just like a top set, you know, of, uh, you know, the big three, you know, followed by um either some volume with that work um or with those lifts or maybe even volume with an alternative exercise like i Mm -hmm. i don't think you know for a lot of people the big three are not the best way to to build muscle um and it's not like i think there's a lot of dogma associated with that like you gotta back squat to get big legs but there's nothing inherently um you know, advantageous of a back squat, you know, mm-hmm. quad development than there is something like, you know, a uh, pack squat, you know, or a leg press. It's very dependent on the individual, their, um, you know, their own individual biomechanics, how they execute the lift. Um, but, you know, I think a case can be made like with hypertrophy work, you want to be able to Get the highest return on your investment when it comes to the stimulus, you know, with the least fatigue cost, and I think that's that's true for, um, you know, strength too. But you're when you're doing these like lifts that are, you know, like a back squat that's, you know, you have a bar on your back. It's going to be more fatiguing, at least subjectively, um, and, and you know, psychologically for most people than you know accruing that same amount of volume with like a hack squat. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I might have like in the you know, off, we will say the off season, you know, further out from a meet, like a top set. And then, you know, the, the volume work that we do, whether it's the, you know, the lift that we're interested in or, you know, a variation of that lift it's, it could be, it's generally going to be a little bit closer to failure because the, the intensity is going to be lower um and we're not going to have super high intensity back off work um in in the volume phases it's not to say you can't include it but you know let's say we're training in like the 6 to 12 rep range i mean (laughs) that's generally outside of what most well six is still kind of that middle ground but let's say 8 to 12 i mean that's going to be um sort of that moderate um you know hypertrophy um, conducive rep range that's just practical in the sense and um, you know you can accrue a decent amount of volume there without you know feeling like your joints are going to explode <laughs> so yeah <laughs> um, so I think you know getting when we're training just as a sort of a general rule of thumb it's like When we're trying to build muscle far out from a meat like we need to reach a certain intensity of effort in order to maximize motor unit recruitment in order to put tension mechanical tension on you know high threshold motor units and the fibers that they. um, You know they control and so. um, So with that said, like that's going to be determined either by the load on the bar or proximity to failure and so. The heavier the load, you know, up to a point, you know, the, the further from failure you can probably take things because, you know, let's say like 75 to 80% of 1RM, you know, for most movements, you're going to probably be seeing, um, you know, maximal motor unit recruitment like out of the gate. Like you're not going to have to necessarily train, you know, as close to failure with heavy loads as you would something like below 75%. Which is where a lot of that hypertrophy work tends to occur, is a little mm-hmm. bit below that, and so in those mesocycles further out from a meet, you know, it's anywhere in that like two to four RIR range on average, I'd say for mm-hmm. for most movements, and um, you know, I think the the movement itself needs to be taken into consideration as well. Um, you know, taking a squat to a true two RIR is going to be pretty demanding. And yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, you have to look at the, the residual impact of, of where you're taking these things. And not to mention, I mean, for some compound movements, you know, people start breaking form a little bit, but they can still like milk out a couple extra reps. And, you know, that's not really the goal. When the goal is hypertrophy, it's like, if you're seeing breakdown in the intent that is still there to you know, maintain technique, but you're just not able to physically, chances are, you know, some muscle group has become the bottleneck, like it's reached more or less concentric failure at that intensity, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's you're breaking form in order to reallocate the demand. And so, you know, I, I sort of, when discussing hypertrophy, I think it's helpful to conceptualize it sort of as. You know, you have the RAR for the movement and then the RAR for individual muscle groups in play, and those aren't always going to be the same. And so, you know, for isolation movements, you may find you can take those to a two RAR and, you know, to even failure at times and and be fine. Whereas, you know, for a a squat, it's like you're, you know, you're taking it sort of beyond failure if you take it to a two RAR and your quads are like a, a limiting factor there, you know um but yeah sort of <laughs> through a lot out there for that but um i think you know as far as the, the original question i think with the high intensity work it's just a little bit closer to failure for vault the back off volume when you're further away from the meet. top sets i still keep relatively heavy for proficiency reasons um and then as we get closer you know the proximity to failure the volume actually comes down a bit, um, which we can, I don't wanna get ahead of myself, but um, there's some rationale behind that too.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we could definitely jump into that. I think it's, um, yeah, it's really important to be, whenever you're talking about strength, and especially when hypertrophy is a big um, priority that you really wanna be metering out your fatigue and um, just being wise about where you're spending it. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's where it's. I like your idea or your point about having that heavy top set or that high intensity volume at the beginning to maintain your specificity for strength, but Mm. as well as keeping in mind that you don't necessarily wanna be using a lot of that work necessarily when you're in that off season sort of building phase of things. Um, and I think, and then, he, yeah. Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, that the, the underlying, even though the underlying theme is hypertrophy early on, it's like including that high intensity work, like some of it is just for, like, just based on preference for the person. I mean, if they're interested in strength, they're going to want to lift heavy sometimes, you know, even when they're far up from a meat. But also, I think, you know, even if it's not pushing us necessarily closer to the goal of hypertrophy, um, you know, they're not included for hypertrophy we'll say that even though the the goal of the block is hypertrophy but i think it's important because once you do start ramping up intensities you don't want to feel lost in the movement it's just keeping a reasonable amount of proficiency in place that way once you do ramp up loads it's an easier transition and you can make those subsequent intensity blocks just more um productive as a whole
0: mm-hmm yeah and then circling back to where you were just leaving off then as you get later on in that phase then what happens
1: so you know let's say we're eight weeks out from a meet um and i'll still program some high intensity blocks you know even if say somebody wants to compete twice a year like they're gonna have more than two like periods of high intensity like i'll still include some high intensity blocks especially if they're you know focused on strength you know maybe maybe we run, you know, two volume blocks or three volume blocks, then, you know, one three week intensity block. And then, you know, if, if anything, you know, that can accomplish a couple things, you know, one, it keeps that proficiency. It helps them sort of express the strength, see some of the progress. It's kind of like doing a mini cut on a, on the diet. It's like, you can sort of see the the fruits of your labor. Um, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, there's some, evidence, um, not necessarily with with low volume phases, but it can sort of a case could be made for this, um, you know, that lower volume periods enhance subsequent hypertrophy phases or resensitize yourself to volume. And um, some of the research that's looked at that is looked at um, taking complete breaks from training and seeing you know, after think it was like, I forget who authored this study. Um, But they took, I think, three week breaks. And um, I think they took two of them, two or three of them along the way. And they had a group that was training um, for the same overall duration. And, And they found the group that took the breaks, you know, mixed in there ended up, like their rate of progress was enhanced after, you know, coming off of those Periods of detraining. So at the end, they had had ultimately caught up to the other group. And so, um, you know, one takeaway from that is like, if you have to take time away from training, don't panic, you know, like it's, you're gonna, um, you know, be fine. But I think, you know, one of the other sort of seeds that 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 research has planted is, okay, well, what if we just go with lower volume, you know, we don't actually detrain, but we do enough volume to maintain adaptations? Will we see an enhanced response coming off of that? And I think, um, you know, to my knowledge, I don't think that has been directly examined yet. Um, I could be Mm -hmm. wrong. But, um, you know, I think the rationale makes sense. And, you know, there's some anecdote to back that up. You know, people will say, you know, having a strength phase, bonds coming off of that. And so I think for that reason, you know, it's worth implementing some higher intensity phases. But, you know, when we were talking about proximity to failure, and this, you know, I was talking about this on a recent podcast um, with uh, a couple guys from Data Driven Strength um, Zach Robinson and Josh Pelland, um, they wrote a really good blog article for my website and talking about like sort of rethinking proximity to failure when it comes to strength training. Mm. And, you know, I think when people look at strength and, you know, the, the specificity continuing to like, okay, what's most specific to, to a one RM, you know, it's going to be a high intensity single, you know, yeah. Um, or something where a lot of people think, okay, you know, grinding out weights, you know, at low velocities, that's going to be specific to strength when, um, you know, they're right in the sense that, you know, the, the low velocity is specific to strength, but I think that what people overlook is what's most specific to strength is high force output. And that's where like a heavy single, you know, close to failure. I mean, you're going to be maximizing force output, whereas like a set of 10 to failure, your last rep may be the same speed as that single, but your force output's going to be a lot lower. You know, it's going to be a lot lower than your first rep of that 10 rep set because you're moving it at a slower velocity. And so, um, so you know, they, they built a really good case and, you know, they, they looked at, um, you know, the research and compiled some research um, and and reviewed it within this this article. And you know, the the case that they're making is as you, you know, intensity goes up, the the volume work, um, you know, you still want to include in many cases like a high intensity top set, something that is like very high force output, you know, something like a heavy double, heavy single. Um, But most people do volume work after that, and I think common convention is that people will train at like an eight RPE, like they'll they'll train very high RPE, even on their volume work with, you know, pretty heavy loads like 80% and above, when in reality it's like if you took, say you did like three sets of six at 80% or something like that. If you were able to then take like if you're seeing significant velocity drop across the set, Mm -hmm. then chances are your force output, you know, for that given level of volume is is going to suffer versus if you did like a six by three at 80%. So you're doing the same tonnage essentially in this case you know we're talking about strength more so I don't usually look at tonnage when it comes to hypertrophy, but in this case it's sort of worth conceptualizing the the idea that. You are know, performing the same sets and reps in low, you know, at the same load, but your average rep is going to be at a higher force output, um, because there's less velocity loss across the set. Um, and so, in that sense, like that, even though the reps are fast on the back off work, it's, it's more specific in the sense that it's, it's higher force. You know it's that's going to that's the name of the game when it comes to strength is maximizing force output and so. um, In addition to that, you know when you train further away from failure it's going to be less fatiguing as well, so you're getting a more robust stimulus. um, You know, for for force output. And it's at a lower fatigue cost. That's associated with it, and so I think it has a lot of utility during these high-intensity phases, and especially during peaking, when you're trying to, you know, manage fatigue and reduce fatigue as you, you know, maximize that, um, you know, the expression of that strength. And so I think it's it's something that sort of goes against the way a lot of people think about it, but I think logically it makes a lot of sense, and. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really intelligent, actually, because yeah, it, as bodybuilders, we we come, come to the gym with this attitude of, you know, go hard and go home, and you got to push everything to the limit. And we, we tend to have a very aggressive approach to progressive overload, where mm-hmm. bodybuilders, you know, like to have a really linear progression, and they're like, okay, I'm gonna add one rep every every week, you know, and yeah. it's very easy for them to sort of grind into the ground on their their heavy compound lifts mm-hmm. where they say yes i'm gonna do you know four sets of five but each set is gonna be you know like a grinder
2: mm-hmm.
0: and i think it can be very wise to sort of um to conserve that uh that s- s- sort of single set uh, destruction mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: yeah and i think i mean for fatigue management reasons but also you know for a strength athlete you're getting a better stimulus from it um if we're looking at force you know if we're looking at like if you're doing four sets of five and they're a grinder i mean it's going to be at a high enough intensity that you don't need to push that close to failure to maximize motor unit recruitment anyway like you can you know be putting tension on those high threshold fibers out of the gate and so um, so I think that's something that's, yeah, like you said, it's it's easy for people when they have that linear mentality to, to kind of go and, and grind through it. Um, you know, I will say I think for people that tend to like be interested in, in both strength and hypertrophy, I'll sometimes change the way I, I implement progression within, you know, a week to week basis. So, you know, people that are interested in strength, they tend to, they want to see the the load on the bar go up, you know, and I think psychologically, if if you're doing just like a traditional double progression format, um, you know, for a compound lift, like it can take, you know, weeks before you see, you know, a two and a half kilo or five kilo increase, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people just get worn down by that. They just, uh, they don't enjoy it. And so Um, not to mention you know intensity is going to influence a lot of these you know strength adaptations anyway and so even in like the volume phases when the goal isn't necessarily high intensities for the compounds that are you know the individuals interested in I'll often still use like a load progression on a week-to-week basis but I'll cap it at like whatever RAR we're after so say like on bench you know, let's say it's like 100 kilos in week one for, you know, four sets up to a three RIR. you know, maintaining a three RIR each set. And then the next week it's like 102 for, you know, four sets maintaining a three RIR, and then 105. And so since we're sort of clamping that RIR, it's like the, you naturally see like this linear trend in volume, like the, the volume load, unless they're adapting really well, which does sometimes happen um especially in that intermediate phase you might find somebody who does you know replicates the same reps the same RIR with a heavier load like that's awesome you know if that happens but mm-hmm. um you know in most cases you will see like this gradual downward trend in reps you would expect to see that with an increase in load each week but we're still managing it in managing that fatigue by You know controlling the rar we're not pushing closer to failure for the sake of adding load necessarily um and so it's still a way to sort of auto regulate the the rate of progression but still have a set variable that's increasing on a week-to-week basis and it's still you know pushing us towards those strength specific adaptations
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i like that i think that having that kind of structure can be very motivating for a lot of athletes, especially when they get tired of just adding, adding reps or, you know, um, doing the sort of bodybuilder style of progression.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, know, we kind of joked about progressive overload and talking about that, but um, (laughs) I think ingrained in all of us is that desire to do something more session to session. And so if you're, if you ought regulate too much, I think it, it can kind of burn some people out. Um, just in my experience coaching, like, I think people can acknowledge, like, uh, even myself, it's like, I, I can acknowledge that people, you know, they, a lot of them don't fully understand, like, what progressive overload is, but ultimately, like i still want to do something more you know i could be in like a lower state of readiness and actually be performing worse mm-hmm. you know having that variable like a you know okay well i'm doing two and a half kilos more than last week It's that can be helpful enough to, to kind of keep me engaged in it you know and i think it's um it's also something especially for those compound lifts you know if if you see the number on the piece of paper sometimes it's like you can kind of get yourself in the mindset like okay i'm doing heavier loads this week and sometimes you end up performing a little bit better so i think how it like some of the psychological impacts that having those you know controlled variables has can be yeah, it can be really beneficial, um, but you know, at the same time, you're not you're not throwing you know caution to the wind. You're still you know managing fatigue based on your readiness on that day.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. And then shifting gears a little bit, just in terms of our target athlete, if we were to then talk about someone whose primary goal is hypertrophy and they basically want to maximize. As much strength as they can within the limits of their optimal hypertrophy programming, and they don't necessarily have any strength meet coming up. Mm-hmm. How would you sort of pro, pro or program them in terms of this in in the long term?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. I think that's probably where a lot of people fall. I mean, there's like the dual athlete, and then there's the person, you know, the the average person that just wants I want strength and size. Like I have no aspirations yeah. of competing. Um, and i think in that case you know just having an intensity phase you know every two or three volume blocks which you know generally volume phases tend to be a little bit longer um because you know those adaptations like hypertrophy adaptations i mean they, they do occur in a you know a short-term session to session basis but generally hypertrophy blocks are a little bit longer than intensity blocks um you know let's say like five weeks versus three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like a rough average. But um, you know, these neurological adaptations, they, they tend to, you know, for most people occur, you know, relatively like, quicker time scale than, you know, appreciable hypertrophy will. Um, and so I, th- I think having, you know, every 10 to 15 weeks, having a three to four week phase where you're, you know, intensifying the training and, you know, pulling back volume a little bit is is going to be beneficial um, in, in expressing that strength, but also, um, you know, allowing them to get a break from from the volume and potentially resensitize to that, like I said, so it's sort of looking at it from the perspective of like, the dual athlete sort of has like, what I like to call like hard peaks, where it's like, you have a, a more drawn out peaking phase, like, what Mm -hmm. I consider a peaking phase in this, I think, gets um, kind of the, the verbiage of this confuses some people, what I consider a peaking phase is like the the intensity blocks, along with like the taper. And then, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, the taper, depending on the athlete can be anywhere from, you know, one to three or four weeks, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's really dependent, depending on the lift as well but you know that those like that's additional time away from hypertrophy work and so I think there's there's a bigger trade-off if you plan on competing than there is if you're just like the the gym goer that wants to get strong and you know on top of getting big because I think it's um you know you're, you're doing more like softer peaks just with these strength phases and, and then maybe like a deload at the end of it you know and um you know in the end it's 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 not a whole lot different but i think those intensity phases they're not followed by as significant of a taper as you would like if you were competing um Mm-hmm. And there's exceptions to that. Like some people will do really well pushing very hard right up into, you know, the week of the meet and then just like a small reduction in volume. Like a lot of females, um, you know, smaller females will, in particular, they they tend to detrain a little bit quicker or they, they lose some of their fitness adaptations a little quicker. Um, and so their tapers oftentimes, you know, anecdotally, you know, you, speak to a lot of coaches, a lot of them will, um, you know, taper them less aggressively than they would, you know, like a 105 kilo male, you know, that's um, got more muscle mass has more, you know, fatigue to, to dissipate. And, uh, you know, they, they can oftentimes sort of hold on to their fitness adaptations a little bit longer, um, at least in, in practice, and you know, what, what we've noticed over time. Um, and so you know there's going to be exceptions to to both sides but you know for like a female athlete like a again let's say you know a 57 kilo female athlete a lot of them you know the the training might not look much different for someone that's just trying to get stronger in the big three versus someone that's trying to compete in powerlifting, you know, because they they might not have as drawn out of intensity phases, you know, they might have, um, you know, some more high intensity work in in their actual volume phases just for, you know, proficiency reasons, um, since they do tend to sometimes detrain a little bit faster and lose adaptations a little bit faster, um, you know, keeping that proficiency in place sort of year round is, is, seems to be a little bit more important for them. Um, you know, on average. So I think it's, it's really very similar, except you don't have the competition taper involved and you may have a little bit less, you know, a shorter intensity block than you would if you were competing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just, I guess, to dig into the, the details of the programming then, um, we we already touched on how you sort of would like to have some initial sort of heavier work and then more uh, volume after that. How would you for this person who's mainly in, in interested in hypertrophy with just a sort of side interested in strength? Um, how would you sort of partition between the amount of volume and uh, the intensity on those your those your main lifts and then accessory work?
1: Um. it's it's not a whole lot different to be honest like it's you may have um like for somebody who's just as you described like let's say somebody's doing squat centric work you know either back squats leg press hack squat whatever let's say they're doing that two times a week you know for an athlete that's like a dual athlete, I might have them do like a top set of back squats on both of those days. And then maybe one of the days they're doing back squats for their volume work. And one of the other days, maybe they're doing like hack squats or high bar squats. Whereas for, you know, just the, the person that's, you know, wanting to power build, um, and not compete, you know, maybe only one of the, um, but at the end of the day, it's like if you're like one top set shouldn't really carry unless you're taking it to like true, like you shouldn't be taking it to like a 10 RPE, you know, but mm-hmm. um, You know, like a double at an eight or you know, a single at a seven like those, those don't carry like they're like when we talk about fatigue. know it's usually more influenced especially things like central fatigue and muscle damage like those are going to and certainly peripheral fatigue that's going to be it's going to be more influenced by volume than it is intensity anyway so it, it it's not really a matter of um controlling fatigue at that point i think sometimes it comes down to practicality and time for people because you know I can add in one top set for somebody. Okay. I want you to do a double at an eight on squats before you do your hack squats. Mm -hmm. Like on on paper, that doesn't look like much, but when you look at it from the perspective of, okay, like that's another probably 20 minutes, you know, depending on the person or more to work up to that top set, like that, that can cut into the rest of their session. You know, maybe they're not able to do as much productive hypertrophy volume because of that. And so, um in many cases you know assuming people are programming their intensity work intelligently and they're not overdoing it i think the the issue is is more in terms of practicality within a session and time um Mm. and you know not to say that you like even if you programmed them perfectly like it's there's still eventually going to be a fatigue management issue um but i don't think uh from what we know about like central fatigue and um muscle damage it's like those yeah those are more you're gonna see that more so in the volume phases anyway um but you know if if you're if you have to do three less sets for a body part in a session because you do a heavy top set like that could be an issue um and i think that i see that more than people that are um doing too much i'd say and you know on the flip side there's also people that's like okay here's my powerlifting program i'm going to train with high intensities year round and then i'm going to pile on a bunch of accessories on top of that like that's not an intelligent way to do it either um but people that are trying to just dose the high intensity work appropriately for the phase they're in, it's, it's usually not much of an issue um, that I've noticed, but logistically, it can become one pretty quickly, because high intensity work just takes so much more time to complete.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then zooming out a little bit, so yeah, you, you mentioned that you like Having a few hypertrophy blocks and then say a strength or a lower volume block mixed in there. Um, in terms of progression between those hypertrophy blocks, would you have any sort of structure, like uh sort of long-term structure in the programming?
1: So when you say progress like from one volume block to another. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I I usually like if I'm doing something like we talked about, like assigned loads or suggested loading in a linear manner and then letting reps sort of trend down across the block, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I may do is like, say we started at a hundred kilos in the first block, you know, and then increased two and a half kilos every week, you know, until we deloaded, maybe the next block we start at, you know, 102 or 102 or, you know, 105 and let it trend down. And so, um, when I'm doing that, I'll usually start the subsequent block a little bit heavier, unless like if somebody's dieting during this, like sometimes that's not a realistic option. And I think that's another thing that's worth touching on. Um, I guess we can talk about that next maybe. But yeah, to answer your question, um, you know, I, I think with the way I structure a lot of the you know protocols within each day, it's you know, if progression is occurring, we just sort of pick up, you know, where we left if we're, you know, operating within a rep range, for example, say we're doing RDLs, you know, something where we're not necessarily trying to increase load, like that's not our main priority, it's in place primarily for, you know, development, Mm -hmm. you know, might use something more like an auto regulated or like a dynamic sort of double progression format there. Mm -hmm. You know, when doing that, it's like you, you're working up to an RAR target, you know, within a rep range. And it's like, you can't really force progression if you're, you know, not adapting sufficiently to accommodate it. You know, you can either work closer to failure and, you know, bullshit yourself that you're making progress or you can, (laughs) or you can just, uh, you know, accept that. Okay. For this point in time, like I'm not, adapting to the degree to earn another rep under, you know, the same conditions. And so, um, but over time, you know, the, that progression should sort of occur organically, you know, assuming you're doing adequate volume. Um, but when I do do the assigned loading, sometimes I will start the next block off, uh, sort of like a wave loading type of approach, block to block. It seems like they people have had good success with that um, in my experience.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. And um, trying to be honest with yourself, yeah. you're not doing progressive failure. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: yeah. And then I guess, yeah, moving on to sort of the more um, um, dedicated bodybuilder than who would be competing as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on sort of strength programming in the,
1: in during contest prep? Um, I don't think it's really necessary. Like top sets are like, like, when we talk about strength programming, I guess like an operating definition for that, for this discussion, you know, could be like 80% and above, you know, any volume, okay. of that intensity. Um, you know, I think there's like, I have an athlete that's in prep right now that, that enjoys doing, like, he's he's not a competitive power lifter, um, you know, he's a dedicated bodybuilder, but he does enjoy, like, the strength side of things, and he finds value in doing, like, a heavy top set, or like a conservative single prior to his volume work, okay. just in a sense, that it sort of potentiates the volume work that's coming afterwards, like, he he finds, you know, if, if nothing else, psychologically, he feels more ready to, you know, perform well on the volume work, and I think there's probably is some, you know, physiological element in terms of you know neural activation for, for that as well. But mm-hmm. um, you know I think that's that's one potential benefit to it. Um, but you know in prep I think it's just important for you know and this can be bodybuilders and um powerlifters you know the weight class that they're trying to get to you know I think it's important just to manage expectations You know, if a bodybuilder in prep wants to do high intensity work, they need to know what the role of that is and be bought into that. Because if like the the goal is not to increase your squat across a prep. And even if you were, even if you're a power lifter, who's, you know, dropping a weight class, like the, like any strength increase that you get is like a a big win you know it's like if you're losing you know it depends on how much you're losing but like let's say someone's trying to drop a full weight class like going from 93 kilos to 83 you know they they can't expect to to be gaining strength during that time i mean there's, there's a reason that strength scales with weight class you know that's that's why we have weight classes so um and a lot of that i think sort of taking it back to the bodybuilder, seeing strength go down on a compound lift can be, um, you know, psychologically deflating, especially if you're in the mindset in the off season of like, okay, you know, progression, like performance is the best proxy we have for hypertrophy, like, especially in natural lifters where, you know, visible muscle growth is painfully slow. Like <laughs> it's, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> um, and oftentimes you don't really see that muscle until you die it down again, and then it becomes very noticeable, but you know, you can't just rely on the mirror to tell you like, okay, you're building muscle. Like you, you know, performance is going to be a very good proxy for that. My like performance, I think sometimes people then assume it works the other way as well. And I think there, there's caveats to both like performance, you know, you can, you could probably be losing muscle and get stronger through neurological avenues. And, and, you know, that's not necessarily going to mean, you know, it's obviously not going to mean you're, you're gaining muscle in that case. Mm -hmm. I mean, chances are, if you're in the off season, that's not going to be the case anyway. But, you know, I think it's, it's important to point out like any performance increase, you know, whether that be in a one RM or, performance you know at a given load um that's not always indicative of hypertrophy it's just like sort of the best thing we have like let's look at the alternatives like there's not really anything else that's going to be super predictive um I mean I know there, there's mm-hmm. discussions out there like you know acute proxies like you know a pump and you know soreness and and I don't um I, I don't really believe that to be like, there, there's some research that shows, you know, soreness is not predictive of, of strength, you know, hypertrophy and mm-hmm. pumps are not, you know, muscle swelling is not predictive of hypertrophy. And so, um, but, you know, there's some anecdote that people, you know, will say that that's, I mean, there, there's a reason why people, you know, anecdotally sort of associate a pump with a good workout, you know, and so, um so I think there's, you know, an argument can maybe be made both ways. But ultimately, like if somebody is getting stronger over a period of time, you know, not necessarily week to week or block to block, but you know, over six months, if you're doing, you know, 20 pounds more on squats for the same amount of reps at the same RAR, it's like you're, you've you probably put on some, you know, muscle mass during that time frame, And so kind of like the longer the wider the lens you look through the more performance starts to correlate with with hypertrophy Mm -hmm. um and then i think it's important you know looking at um the exercise in question because you know a compound movement it's like you could become significantly more proficient in it and you know that's the the reason for this you know progress through a wide lens and so you have to look at experience you have to look at the lift but um you know isolation movements they, they don't get enough um credit for how informative they can be because they're they're not skill dependent they're not really impacted as much mm. by fat loss and so you know performance increases or you know decrements to those it over time they seem to be a little bit more telling because they're less influenced by these changing variables you know so um when we're talking about like a dieting bodybuilder hmm You know somebody that's that's dieting down and they're seeing their their back squat like drop significantly or their bench it's like a lot of this you know people because they're in that mentality of you know progression equals hypertrophy or is a proxy for hypertrophy they assume that same rule sort of applies on the way back down but the issue there is that um you know, strength is so impacted by technique, and technique as you get leaner, especially in the compound movements, changes significantly. Yeah. Like you just have less support, like on a squat, you, you're less structurally, um, like you just feel frail under the bar, you know? Yeah. And so your, you know, quads can be exerting the exact same amount of force, you know, on, you know, within the muscle, but the, how that expresses itself to the load on the bar could be, you know, pretty deflating (laughs) because, you know, you could be, you know, you have no waist at that point. You have no, um, you know, you can't use your girth to kind of help (laughs) them up. And so, um, so I think that's one thing. It's like, just understanding what influences um, there are on strength that aren't just muscle mass. And there, you're going to see more changes in those like, secondary influences like technique and you know tissue leverages is the term a lot of people like to throw around and i think it's it's mostly just like feeling you know you're just there's less of you under the bar (laughs) you know that's kind of the biggest thing um and so i mean those are going to be influenced more or see a more i guess rapid change on the way down than they will in the off season, you know, going the other direction, assuming you're, you know, gaining at a conservative rate, and you know, let's say you're losing at, you know, 0.75% per week on average, and you're gaining at like 0.25% per month or something like that, or, you know, per week, it's, uh, you know, those, those changes are just going to have a much bigger impact with fat loss. And so I think For those athletes that are interested in strength on the way down it's like okay let's sort of shift your perspective and let's let's look at performance and emphasize like sort of. You can sort of gauge the efficacy of our strategy on how isolation movements are holding up more so than your your back squat or your bench press and. You know i've told this anecdote before, but like in my last prep, which was now, I mean it's 2017 I think um like I had done a powerlifting meet before that and I think um like in the prep for that meet I benched I think 400 and then I on the way down during prep um I competed as an 83 kilo Hmm. rather than a 93 um mostly just to say I did it like just to check it off my (laughs) list because it's like okay sounds terrible well it's like I'm down here like I want to just you know, experience this. And it, it was mm-hmm. like it was a fun process, but it's like it's I, I knew like I fortunately managed my expectations and I knew like, okay, yeah. don't let these dropping numbers discourage you because <laughs> the goal here, you know, you're diet the reason you're dieting is for bodybuilding. It's not for powerlifting. Um so I did what I could, but on the strength side of things, like my squat fell obviously. Um deadlift actually it fell a little bit, but it it was okay um which tends to be what a lot of people experience it's like as you get leaner it's like to a point it can actually sort of help your deadlift depending on how heavy you are to begin with but um bench in particular like my pressing strength just tanked yeah and i think i hit like 335 at the meet um when i had hit like 400 you know months mm-hmm. before that in the gym and so um Like, at the end of that prep, though, I think like my chest and triceps and shoulders like I I think they held on to size probably the best out of any of my muscle groups, even though that lift saw the biggest plummet out of all of them, you know, and so. um, And I mean, there's there's reasons for that it's like you have less like the bar path, for example, or the range of motion is going to increase you know if you're thinner from front to back, it's like you're know your range of motion is going to be longer and I was like actually you know getting some like anterior shoulder pain at the bottom of my bench because I wasn't used to having to bring the bar down so far and so Mm. I was like internally rotating a bit just to to get the bar down to my (laughs) chest and so it was uh it it was very clearly a, a matter of fat loss and changes in execution than it was dry muscle tissue you know what I mean so um because on the muscular level you know i may have been producing a very similar amount of force and um you know it just wasn't shown through the movement because the movement had changed so much and so i think yeah managing expectations on the way down is really important because a lot of people will look at that and they assume like okay i'm losing muscle at a rapid clip here we need to add calories in that that's how a lot of people don't get in shape (laughs) They um, they, they end up sort of being a fearing muscle loss you know a bit excessively based on how they're performing in the gym when you know if you're training hard you know and you're doing adequate volume and you're you know eating sufficient protein and you know probably most importantly losing at a rate that's you know, reasonable, you're not, you know, losing 2% of your body weight per week. I mean, you, if you're losing like 1% of your body weight and below per week, um, you know, chances are you're maintaining most, most of your muscle, you know, until you're like really peeled and then losses from there should definitely come down. But, you know, at the beginning of a prep, you know, I, I usually aim for like 0.75 to 1% for most people. And then, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the middle of prep, it's kind of like 0.5 and at the end, you know, maybe 0.25, but, you know, if you average it for, for, you know, myself and, you know, some of the people that I've prepped, it usually comes out to like 0.5 on average percent weight loss per week. Um, and if you're doing that, it's like, there's, there's really no reason, like what else can you really do? You know, it's mm-hmm. like you're eating adequate protein, you're providing a stimulus, you're losing at a conservative rate be content at that point and just ride it out. And, you know, once you add food back in and, you know, fill out of it, you're going to realize you have more muscle than maybe you thought.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I find that this is a sort of conundrum that comes with bodybuilding and Mm -hmm. and sort of the main movements where you have such a variation in the numbers that you're lifting. And this is, I think where as you said it can be very valuable to look at isolation work Mm -hmm. to sort of reassure yourself because often especially if you're a bodybuilder who might be going through contest preps or maybe have short yeah strength oriented cycles um your your lifts on your your main movements will change a lot like Mm -hmm. simply simply from your your nutritional interventions and it can be tricky to sort of know where you're at Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah at the end of the day you just have to there's some trust involved in the fat loss process like you you have to like once you have those big boxes checked and you know that you almost kind of have to try to lose muscle (laughs) in order to lose it like at the rate that maybe you think you are um because mm-hmm. most people you know if they're if they're doing all of those things it's like you're gonna lose lean body mass across a contest prep like everybody does but you're not going to you know just because you know my bench decreased you know whatever it was probably 20 you know, or or so you know it's um that's not how much muscle i lost you know, <laughs> during that time so mm-hmm. it's uh it is definitely less correlation on the way down for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And and then one last question, I guess, that I think is relevant to power building or people trying to maximize um, strength and hypertrophy for, say, the bodybuilder who wants to get strong as well. What are your thoughts on sort of managing axial fatigue um, for for training, especially, you know, like the, the common question is, um, are deadlifts good for hypertrophy? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um- you know, when we talk about fatigue and, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before on different podcasts, it's like there's, there's actual physiological measures of fatigue. And, you know, Chris Beardsley, um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with, he's, you know, written some good pieces about, you know, different types of fatigue, but, you know, muscle damage, um, you know, peripheral fatigue, which is like what we feel during a set, high rep set, you know, that's why a set becomes harder um and then you have the central fatigue element and um you know outside of that there's it's sort of like okay when we ask somebody where is fatigue at you know if i ask a client like how are you feeling in terms of fatigue like i don't they're not going to know if they're centrally fatigued they might know if they have some significant muscle damage you know if, like if they're just feeling wrecked in the muscle but um you know it, it's a at the end of the day, like when, when people talk about it, it's a very subjective term. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do just with psychological fatigue, you know, that <laughs> pertains to the training. So when it comes to like axial loading, um, I think a lot of that is like, where, where do we put that in under those, you know, under that umbrella? It's, it's hard to say. I think I definitely acknowledge like squats are going to be more fatiguing than, like a hack squat. And I I certainly think it's possible that, you know, axial loaded movements are are going to, um, you know, especially for high volumes of work, probably carry, you know, and this, I don't have any data to back this up, but just, I do think the psychological element plays a role in terms of like central drive. And, and I think, um, it could be, you know, you just feel worn down I think there, there could be a greater central fatigue cost to those movements potentially. Um, and I don't know if that's been looked at like I, I actually I don't know and I'm curious I want to look now if, if they've looked at, um, you know central output and central drive um, with like a back squat versus like a leg press, you know with relatively equated, you know, relative volumes. I don't know. Um, but I think you ask anybody like, which is more fatiguing, you know, three sets of 10 at an eight RPE on squat or three sets of 10 at eight RP on leg press. Everyone's going to tell you it's, it's going to be the squat, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and I think there's also something to be said there where you are training more muscle. When you think about it, it's like your, your back is not a limiting factor on a hack squat um but there is still some type there's still a degree of axial loading on a hack squat you know if, if the pads are on your shoulders but um you know i think anything that is training more muscle just as a whole is going to feel more acutely fatiguing and some of that could be you know peripheral fatigue and you know how it's carrying over into subsequent exercises like if you have to do a back squat and then you go to do deadlifts like those deadlifts are going to feel a lot worse off than if you did leg press before and so i think sometimes it's the impacts of some of those movements really sort of get fleshed out once you start to look at you know the downstream effects rather than necessarily just the acute how how tiring was this movement in isolation like it's probably fairly manageable like it subjectively, it might feel a little bit harder. But when you look at it throughout the course of an entire session, you know, like if you were to rate your session RPE, which is, you know, I think a underutilized tool, um, you know, when looking at like subjective fatigue levels, you know, generally, it's going to be quite a bit higher if you do something like a back squat first versus like a leg press. And it's not to say that that's bad. It just depends on what your goal is. Um, You know, somebody's got you know, really poor ankle mobility, um, you know, really long femurs, um, you know, a short torso. It's like they're they're set up structurally in a way where squats are just going to be a very fatiguing movement. Like their back is going to just, they're going to have a lot of forward lean. It's not going to create, you know, a great stimulus on quads, most likely. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that case, it's like, it's not a great return on your investment at that point. Whereas, you know, somebody who's um you know, short femurs, longer torso, great ankle mobility, it's like they they could have, you know, back squats could be a great movement for them. You mm-hmm. know, it, it carries, you know, significantly less fatigue. And so um, you know, I think the axial, the impact of axial loading is going to depend on the individual structure and sort of what what precedes that, you know, afterwards, to a significant degree. But I do think if you were to sort of look at it, like where does that fatigue, you know, where do we categorize that? It's probably just, um, you know, perception of fatigue, which I think is probably mediated by central um, mechanisms, which, you know, I, I don't fully like, I'm not an expert in the central nervous system and how the, the different <laughs> aspects of how um, you know, the feedback loops that impact that. But it's it's a pretty fascinating area.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, really interesting. And um, yeah, I think that, yeah, in general, it's important for people to yet know that everyone's sort of morphology is going to be a lot different and their mm-hmm. response to different movements. And we mentioned this at the beginning, where You um, pointed out that, you know, for some people, uh, a high bar back squat might not be, you know, the best Mm -hmm. movement and finding something that works will, is going to be more important, especially if your main goal is hypertrophy.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, we just need to sort of trust our intuition. It's like if you do a movement and you feel like, wow, I feel this, I, I think there's certainly something to, you know, the, I want to call it the mind muscle connection or just perceived localized stress on a muscle it's like if you feel like an exercise is like the fatigue is is localized that's usually a good thing you know it's it's if you feel um you know it's like a low bar back squat you know it's like when i when i do those heavy it's like i don't feel my quads working even though they are working you know like i feel it in my face <laughs> that's, that's yeah. like my a soul back. yeah so <laughs> it's like yeah, i feel it in my blood vessels but um but like yeah th- that tells me it's like this is you know training heavy like yes my quads are getting a good stimulus i mean they you have to extend your knee to squat you know but um it's carrying a cost that could probably be spared, you know, if I were to lighten the load significantly, or, you know, pick an alternative movement. Um, And so I think, yeah, just not getting caught up in, you know, the dogma of, you know, certain exercises need to be, you know, included in a program or, you know, deadlifts have to be included to, to build your back. I mean, I think, you know, like an RDL for a lot of people, if the goal is hypertrophy is, you know, oftentimes probably a better alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I also think a lot of people are quick to sort of assume deadlifts are significantly suboptimal for hypertrophy or not a great movement for hypertrophy when I think they can be a good movement for hypertrophy. It just comes down to You know controlling the eccentric to a degree you're not you're not dropping it at the top it's like you're you know doing like a soft touch and you know you're keeping um i mean you can do a set of deadlifts and have it feel completely different you know and um by controlling the eccentric and you're going to feel significant peripheral fatigue if you're doing you know set some you know six to twelve or something like that so um yeah there's definitely a decent amount of mechanical tension you know on those those muscle groups and um you know more importantly it's like if you enjoy doing a movement it's like do it like that's at the end of the day it's consistency and adherence like a lot of people we you know they listen to podcasts they you know read research and they're looking for the optimal way of doing things when in reality it's like it, it the people that are the most developed, a lot of them have been doing things. If you look at that, you know, if you look at their history, have probably been doing things suboptimally for a long time, but they've been doing it for so long because they enjoy what they're doing. You know, Mm. and it's like the the people that are in it the longest that are, um, you know, you don't have to have the perfect plan. You have to have a plan that's putting you in the direction you want to go. And it's, you know, Pushing you in that direction, but it's something that you enjoy, and you know, I think, you know, as a coach, that's, you know, you're you're making those compromises with people at times where it's like, okay, you know, this, you know, in a perfect world, maybe we'd be doing this, and it's, but you know, it's clear that this is the answer to keep you going and keep you, you know, enjoying the training and progressing because we tend to progress best with the things we enjoy.
0: Hmm. Yeah yeah great point especially since you know bodybuilding um sort of like the, the the length of time you've been doing it is such a big factor especially oh, yeah. when you go to shows and you, you look at obviously the the people who are doing better usually are the ones who have been training for a really long time
1: so mm-hmm. and a lot of them like they they're still on bro splits you know <laughs> it's like yeah. they're, you know and so it's um yeah it really is it's a it's a patient man's game or, you know, woman, <laughs> <It's a> patient <laughs> yeah, individual's so. game. Um, but yeah, it's over, if you stick with it over time, you're going to see progress. As long as it's a reasonable approach, Yeah, it's safe, keeps you healthy. That's the other thing is just, you want to make sure you're not putting yourself at risk um, for the sake of trying to optimize something in the short term.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah anyways yeah this has been a great discussion brian and i really appreciate that you have been able to give us some very thoughtful and um sort of just some good clear benchmarks for people to sort of think about their programming in terms of hypertrophy and strength
1: yeah my pleasure thanks for having me on
0: yeah where can people find
1: you um instagram um at bd minor and then uh, my website is myojournal.com which is if anybody's interested in reading the uh, article on proximity of failure that um, the data-driven strength guys wrote, um, they can find it on there.
0: So it's a really good read. So. Great. And any other uh, interesting developments? I know we talked a bit off um,
1: Yeah. So I don't know when this is going to come out, but it's the uh, first week of February, Kabuki Strength is hosting like an education week, and I think they have at this point, like 55 speakers. Um, it's a 45 minute presentation for each and then like a 15 minute Q and A, but it's going on all week. Um, it's a really good deal, especially if you watch the, the things live. Um, and yeah, that's uh, something to look into. There's a, if you go to their website and I actually have the link it on my Instagram if you're interested, but yeah, um, you know, there's a breakdown of all of the topics and speakers and everything. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, should be pretty cool. Be cool. So, Great. and I also uh, I do um, the JPS there in Melbourne, Australia. I work um, for their mentorship program, so mm. I I help you know, put together content for them and um, put together like some of the training and programming modules for them, and then um some other things like some uh training for you know contest prep and you know power type stuff so it's uh yeah it's a really really cool resource if people are interested in uh you know training for or you know, trying to become a coach or you know improve their you
2: know, position
1: within the industry in terms of you know, gaining knowledge in different you know full spectrum of areas when it comes to you know both remote and in-person coaching i think it's as far as i as far as i know probably the most comprehensive resource for for that particular audience that you know i've seen so really proud to be part of that too
0: awesome so yeah well i'll put a link to your um social media in the show notes below thanks again for being on the show yeah my pleasure thanks man That's all for now guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.